Hello, welcome to Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for a special live podcast show before a real set of human beings. Human <laughs> beings! All right. Respond. There we go. This is not a uh, AI-generated audience. This is a real audience. How do, how do you know? That, that's a good point. Yeah, there's got to be some kind. Of, what's the, is it, the? There's got to be some kind of test that we can. I think you're thinking of the Turing test. Yeah, I was thinking of it, and I realized then I don't really know if they're real if I'm using the Turing test because, you know, if it seems like it's real, the Turing test tells you that's all you need to know. It, it's the appearance. It's all about perception. <laughs> anyway, uh, maybe we'll get into that. Probably not, at least not in this show. But <laughs> I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written some books, and one of those books is in the house of Tom Bombadil. Did you bring some of the books, Caleb? Um, no. <laughs> they're in the car, but we'll have them later. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're uh, here in um, Memphis. We're in Memphis, and we had like an awesome lunch a little while ago. But anyway, uh, we're going to be uh, spending some time talking to our friend uh, Doug Grotheist, and he's going to introduce himself in a minute. But why don't we uh, go around the horn like we normally do? Glenn, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and uh, ministry associate, I guess that's the title, at Reflections Ministries. And it's good to have the band back together. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, we don't do this in person uh, very much anymore. So, Tom. Uh, Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, philosophy, and ethics. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And it is great to be together in person. This is nice. And to be with Doug in person. Right, right. Yeah, we had you on the show here recently on the theme uh, jazz music, which was a lot of fun. It but was. I think I laughed more during that interview than any interview I've ever done. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it was very enjoyable. Yeah, a lot of people laugh I at us. I guess we're just absurd. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's all it means. Yeah. But anyway, it was very fun. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Doug. Well, I'm a philosopher. I've taught philosophy at Denver Seminary since 1993. Read a number of books in the areas, really, of philosophy, religion, ethics, and culture, and comparative religion. And, and maybe a few other things that I forgot. Postmodernism, yeah. Blaise Pascal, so on. And critical theory, which yeah, is what we're going to be talking book, about today. Fire in the streets. Yeah, so you, got, you have this book. It just came out not too long ago. It came out, I think, last August. Yeah, how's with it been Salem. going? Well, it's not doing as well as I would like. I think a lot okay. of authors say that. Part of the problem might be that the words critical race theory don't appear in the title. Uh -huh. So it's called Fire in the Streets and has a long subtitle, which I forget half the time. Yeah. Uh, so I'm hoping if we get to a second printing, I could put... Uh, critical race theory in the subtitle, like something yeah. a little more jazzy, like how critical race theory is destroying America. You know? There you go. That'll definitely, that'll definitely, uh, and families and everything of, else. Right? Yeah, fire or, in the streets. Or why woke is wrong. <laughs> why woke is wrong. Right. That would have been a good title for the book, I guess. Yeah. So who's the publisher? Salem. Salem. They're good folks. So, yeah. um, can I give us the uh, kind of the synopsis? What, what, do you, what right. do you have to say in the book? Yeah, well, it really comes out of what happened in 2020 with the George Floyd riots. And people were asking me, well, what's behind this? What is going on when people are saying America is systemically racist, racism is baked into the system, uh, the American founding was a fraud because the founders owned slaves? And I would get questioned about this. And... Uh, what I do as a Christian philosopher is when I get very concerned and angry about something, eventually I write a book about it. <laughs> so I wanted to help people 
understand some of the philosophical ideas behind the uh, very malignant radicalism we saw in the summer of 2020 through the Black Lives Matter movement and through uh, people saying the American experiment has failed, we have to burn it all down and start over again. Uh, my wife Kathleen and I, in the summer of 2020, were at her homestead in Willow, Alaska, and Willow, Alaska was safe from the riots in 2020. <laughs> and we really wondered if we should go back to Denver. Yeah. Because the capital was besieged in Denver. Buildings were literally being torched. Yeah. Riots were going on. There was a lot of incendiary language, too. And I, I talked to several of my friends, and I said, do you think it's safe to come back in the suburbs? Yeah, yeah. And we decided to come back. I could have probably taught remotely from Willow, Alaska, uh, people were not tearing up anywhere in Alaska over this. Right, right. Generally, um, that's a safe haven. Yeah. So I decided to write a book about it, and I realized that, of course, a lot of the language was rooted in uh, extreme leftism, neo-Marxism, and I wanted to help explain that to people. There are a lot of elements that go into critical race theory. Uh, Glenn and I were chatting about that before the start of the show. There are a number of elements to it, but a not inconsiderable element is Marxism. Right. And I'm finding now, as, as an old guy, that a lot of younger folks, I'd say people under 40, under 30, don't know what Marxism is. Yeah, it's crazy. And they don't yeah. know that it's an atheistic, destructive, lethal philosophy that about 100 million human beings were killed by their own civil governments in the 20th century mm -hmm. through Marxism. Now, why you would want to make that the basis for any subsequent theory uh, is beyond me. I guess people are ignorant, or they still have this utopian vision that somehow the revolution will finally come and will be able to undermine original sin yeah, without right. redemption. Right. You know, I think that a lot of uh, what we see is a kind of uh, political utopianism with critical race theory. Uh, I dedicated my book to Thomas Sowell. Oh, nice. And I want to read my dedication because he has been so helpful. To Thomas, to Dr. Thomas Sowell, preeminent and courageous social scientist and intellectual inspiration to me for 40 years. I sent him a copy of the book and he didn't even send me a note. Darn it. Anyway. <laughs> he's too busy studying and writing books constantly. He's 92. He has a yeah. new book coming yeah, out. That's a, but anyway, the reason I mentioned Thomas Sowell is that I refer to him over and over again. But he wrote this really seminal book called the, uh, A Conflict of Visions. It came out in, I think, 87. I remember it. And he yeah. said there are basically two political visions, the constrained and the unconstrained. And as Christians, we hold to the constrained vision because we believe in the fall and original sin does not allow an earthly utopia to occur. And when people try to bring it about, they just bring hell to earth instead of heaven to earth. Hmm. The unconstrained vision is the view essentially that any kind of limits or problems we see in society are part of external structures. Yeah. And when those external structures are changed, then the innate goodness and creativity and love of human beings will just come pouring forth. Yeah, we see that all the time. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the French Revolution, to, yeah. to start with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, just, just as a side note, um, be, because the American founders owned slaves, we need to tear down the entire American system and replace it with something else. Right. 
compare that with the Marxists killing 100 million people, but we don't need to do anything about mm, that. Tearing that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, one, of, one of the things right. I think uh, this um, demonstrates is that most people who dismiss um, ivory tower intellectuals as irrelevant and out of touch with reality kind of miss uh, a significant um, truth, and that is the effects of their ideas often take a long time to kind of make a difference in your life. <laughs> so Karl Marx, we're talking about a guy who uh, lived and wrote in the mid-19th century. And today, uh, he has changed your life. There is not a single person in this room whose life has not been touched by Karl Marx. Uh, so when you dismiss people as ivory tower, out of touch with reality, yeah. well, just keep in mind that they may be addressing a reality that you'll be dead <laughs> by the time well, it comes it, to pass. It's interesting you say that because I remember, especially when postmodernity was just everywhere in the, in the academic scene, and most of the works that I was reading, I'm thinking there is no way people outside of this sphere <laughs> are ever yeah. going to embrace this. And now everyone's embraced it. You know, so uh, yeah. being in it, you can, you can pretty much think sometimes you're buffered from, from it going anywhere and it's... Yeah, yeah or, or you, have this, you have the comfort of knowing I can return to reality yeah. at some point. So well, like was, when I lived in Cambridge and I was at Harvard Divinity School and I'd see all this stuff and hear all this stuff, you know, I'd think, well, there are salt of the earth people out there who aren't even aware of these things. And I would comfort myself with that thought. Yeah. Now all those people have been corrupted. <laughs> I, I, I used to say that there are some ideas that are so stupid only an overeducated person could believe them. Um, I've changed that now to there are some ideas that are so stupid that it takes an overeducated person to begin propagating them. Right, mm, that's how it works. Or there's uh, Malcolm Muggeridge's great quote about how we've been educated into imbecility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, kind of develop uh, some of the themes that you are uh, mm -hmm. you work with in the for us. Well, I do explain critical race theory by going back to Marxism and explain the basis of this conflict worldview, which is materialistic, atheistic. Uh, everything's really driven essentially by economic conflict between owners and workers, and Marx and Engels claim that. Eventually, this struggle, class struggle, between the owners and the workers, the, the bourgeois and the proletariat, will reach a crisis point, and there'll be a revolution. Private property will be overthrown. The profit motive will be overturned. And there'll be no need for the division of labor. There'll be no need, eventually, even for the state. So Engels said one of the most absurd things in the history of philosophy, and that's saying something. <laughs> he, said, he said, eventually the state will wither away. Yeah, the state yeah. will wither away. Of course, that has never happened under any Marxist revolution. The state has become totalitarian. Yeah. Because in Marxism, you have no doctrine of the image of God, so there's no universal human rights, hmm. so there's no constraint put on civil government. Civil government becomes government, becomes the engine of regeneration, sort of a religion of revolution hmm. without God. And what happened in the 1920s and 30s in Germany is that a group of atheist thinkers, Marxist thinkers like 
Herbert Marcuse, Max Horkheimer, and Eric Fromm and others said, you know, we have to keep our Marxism, but we have to realize that Marx's predictions haven't come true because the revolutions haven't occurred under the conditions he thought they would. Mm -hmm. And moreover, a lot of the workers in America and in Europe and elsewhere are fairly content. Hmm. And so we have to show them that they're more exploited and alienated than they think. Mm -hmm. So you have the development of critical theory. And the idea was you still have this conflict between the oppressors and the oppressed, but they added various dimensions to it, uh, such as emphasizing uh, racial oppression, the oppression of sexual minorities, and so on. So they basically wanted to build up the base of revolutionaries and convince people that they were truly oppressed, but they added these dimensions beyond the economic, uh, they added the cultural dimension to it. Uh, so you have this idea that this is not... Um, it was said by somebody who's not that well-known. He was a student activist, but he said, somebody might remember it, we need a, what he called a long march through the institutions. Right. Yeah. So it's not necessarily literally go in the streets and burn down buildings, although we'll do that if that would help and work. Right. But we'll infiltrate the academy, business, civil government, entertainment, and turn it culturally in this direction of talking about an oppressor group and the oppressed. And the oppressors now are, are white male Christians. Essentially, that's like the worst of the oppression, the oppression index. If you're a white male Christian, hetero, heterosexual, or as they would say, heteronormative, you think there right. are actual moral truths about sexuality <laughs> in the world, then you're part of this oppressive force in the world. So I... I take it back to Marxism. I show Marxism developed into what's called critical theory. And then after that, there were various thinkers that really focused on the racial element, like Derek Bell and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw mm -hmm. and others. And they wanted to make race the defining feature of human identity. Mm. So what race you belong to really says everything about you, as opposed to what we believe that we're made in the image and likeness of God, everyone. We're all fallen. We all need one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, the critical race theory makes race foundational. It says that racism is common in all societies, but especially in American society, and that America has been racist from the beginning. It's baked into the system. And the only way to address this is major structural change of society, which means a very far left socialism to, uh, to adjudicate all the disparities among racial groups. So now when it comes to sort of the vision of, uh, you know, the, the, the good life or utopia, <laughs> mm -hmm. when, does this, when does this process end? Do we, does, it, does it end? Uh, can it even conceivably end? If I define myself or I understand myself strictly in terms of my racial identity, um, doesn't that reinforce the very conflict that hopefully we get beyond at some point? Well, I think it does, but they would say that if you become aware, or the language would be if, uh, if the oppressor oppressors do the work of realizing white privilege, white supremacy, then they can accumulate enough guilt 
to hand things over to this far left sort of uh, now, now why would I want to do that that's the question it's a, it's a new form of the treasury of merits <laughs> yeah, yeah but it's a kind of treasury of demerit <laughs> treasury of demerit but why would yeah. I want to do this so it, I, I've thought about this quite a bit and I've been involved in these conversations for my entire adult life and it, it's like it feels like an eternity <laughs> uh, but you know you get to the place where you say okay this is the way the game works um, if there are no moral absolutes, if there is no transcendent realm against which all things are measured, and it's really just interests that are, are being pursued, why should I, why should I uh, even care about where my actions bring you pain, you know, any of that stuff? Why don't I just say, yeah, we won, and we're glad, and we're going to keep winning? Yeah, the, the reason is that critical theory is a Christian heresy. Well, that's, I agree, I agree. You know, it, it takes a truth, oppression is wrong, oppression yep. is sin, yep. and it makes that the single dominant thing that determines everything else. Mm -hmm. And it, it, the word heresy comes from a Greek verb, hyrain, which means to choose. The right. idea is you choose one idea and you run with it so far, it's like grabbing a thread on a sweater and pulling it, the whole sweater distorts. Right. Well, you grab an idea and you run with it and it distorts everything else. Mm -hmm. So they're banking on the fact that there is enough sort of residual Christianity in the culture right. that they can make this appeal to ideas of justice, ideas of fairness, um, the, the evil of oppression and all of that, redefine it in their own way, and then sell it back to us. It, yeah. It's interesting you mention that because that's sort of what Nietzsche basically said was the nasty thing Christians were guilty of, right? Is basically trying to convince the powerful and the strong right. somehow that, you know, they were, you know, th that the weak needed to kind of replace them <laughs> in a sense. And so there is your kind of twist on Nietzsche. They, they kind of run, run with that, actually use hangover mm -hmm. things from Christianity, like guilt of oppressing and image of God. This is what I was going to ask on this point, Doug. I mean, what notion of, what anthropological notion underpins this once you can get rid of the kind of hangover Christianity that people are made in the image of God and we should care whether they're oppressed or not. So they have to sell it in a context where that would matter. But they really run with a different view of the human later. Well, they do, and that's why I included in my book a chapter showing how the Christian worldview explains who we are as human beings and gives us a, a true and encouraging concept of race and of uh, the realities of the fall, the constrained vision, and of hope for some amelioration of the fall or some betterment of human society given Christian principles. But uh, the very idea of the dignity of the individual person mm. is not sustainable on critical race theory. Mm. It's a matter of group conflict, mm. one group next against the other group, and especially if you can build up intersectional points. So if you're black and a lesbian and handicapped, then you are, how many did I get, three? You got three there. Three points of intersectional oppression. Well, you've got four, actually, because you're also a woman, kind of by definition. There. 
women so lesbian. That category, yeah. Yeah. that category is kind of being a ra- yeah. Raised. Yeah, that's the categories right. Bleed together. I don't a believe bit in there. women anymore. <laughs> yeah, what is a woman? <laughs> <laughs> they don't exist. They're mythical. Yeah. Well, the other thing that that's interesting here is they view systematically everything is a zero sum game. Yeah. So. Um, in a zero-sum game, in order for one person to get ahead, they've got to take it away from somebody else. Mm-hmm. So what you get is um, an interest. Th- th- this operates in a bunch of different ways. Anybody who has power took it away from people who don't have power. Right. So whites have taken it away from people of color. By the way, you ever wonder why people of color is okay, but colored people isn't? Yeah, it's an odd it's thing. An interesting linguistic yeah, I thing. When, I remember but, when colored people went out of fashion. It right. Was in the 60s. Yeah. Um, Unless you were at the NAACP, but then you never define <laughs> what the letters mean. But but anyway, the um, so wh- whites took their power away from people of color, men took their power away from women, and so on. But the flip side of this is that since oppression is wrong, you lose moral authority when you're an oppressor. But that means, since it's a zero-sum game, that moral authority passes to the oppressed. So the more categories of oppression you're, uh, you've got, the more moral authority you have. And the more categories of oppression you have, the more you lose. But you see, this is the, this is the thing. That's why everybody wants to be a victim. Uh, except the Nazis. You see, the Nazis embrace this. And this is one of the things that I think is sort of the underdeveloped, I think, uh, concerns that I have that you know, I don't see people talking about. So when we think about the Nazis, they're, they're essentially working with certain, within a certain framework that's in a, sort of on, they're on the same page with, with the Marxist materialist kind of thinking. So, but instead of uh, laboring under the, under the, the cloud of guilt that, that Christianity uh, the residual Christianity, cultural Christianity, uh, provides for the Marxists to pursue their agenda. They just reject it entirely and say, fine, um, we're just the master race, or we're going to create the master race, which, which is something I think they really were more interested in, in, in uh, pursuing, rather than just saying the Aryans, as they existed at that point, were the master race. But but basically, at that point, you're just saying, okay, um, there are winners, there are losers, we intend to win. That's it. We Struggle. just intend to win. Yeah, it's warfare based on race. Yep. Um, but with the critical race theory vision, uh, you know, what is the end game? What is the real goal? And classical Marxism is is very utopian. Eventually, the state withers away, and right. there's this wonderful statement about from Karl Marx about how anyone can do anything they want, and without ever having been Fishing constrained day, I think, by. I, I should memorize it. It's so horrible, but this is the way it'll be in the in the utopia after right. the revolution happens. Right. I think with critical race theory, you lose that uh, sense of optimism, and it's it's more. It's an ongoing struggle forever. Yeah, and yeah. bitter. Uh, Shelby Steele, who's one of my favorite writers yeah, on race, he's an mm. African-American historian who was a black radical in the 60s and 70s, yeah. wrote a book called White Guilt. Yeah. And he said so much of left-wing political policy and culture is based on white guilt, that if there's something wrong in the African-American community, if there's differential achievement and so on, discrepant achievement then it has to be 
the fault of the whites. And if there's still any discrepancy, whites are on the hook and they have to feel guilty. And I think this, is, this explains the tens of millions of dollars that white people threw at Black Lives Matter in 2020. And you probably know that the organization is thoroughly corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. The leaders made millions off of this. They wanted the destruction of the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. They're atheists. Their mentor was Angela Davis, who is a mentee of Herbert Marcuse, the Marxist uh, radical philosopher of the new left in the 60s. But I think so much of this is uh, some people believe, as, as Glenn was saying, it's a zero-sum game. Mm. So if whites, generally speaking, have more property or more achievement, they have to have somehow stolen it from people of color. Well, in some cases, yes, in American history, but is that the only category we want to use uh, to talk about these situations? And that's one of my big critiques politically and economically of critical race theory, is that it assumes that discrepancies of achievement are always based on racism. Mm. Like there's a quote from Ibrahim X. Kendi to that effect, that if there's discrimination, you have to use discrimination to equalize outcomes. It's not like we shouldn't discriminate, we should be colorblind. No, we need to realize that every discrepancy of achievement is based on racism, period. Mm. He doesn't argue for it, he doesn't give you any footnotes. Mm. He obviously hasn't read Thomas Sowell or <laughs> Charles Murray, or any of any of these social science that will show you that yes, race is a factor, and race racism can be a factor in hindering people's achievements, but there are all kinds of other things, like the value you place on marriage, family, education, the average age. That's one thing. Thomas Sowell points that out. If the average age of a population is in the 50s, they'll have tended to accumulate more wealth sure. than if the average age yeah. is in the 30s. Things like that, where you live, around the world, people that live in mountainous places tend to not achieve as much economically and educationally because it's hard to live in the mm. mountains and so on. Right. So there are all these different features that go into understanding why we have these different levels of achievement. But what critical race theory says, no. If you have 13% of the population African-American, then you have to have 13% of the population as pilots, as professors, okay. as surgeons. Yeah. And everybody should read. Of course, you should read my book first, Fire in the Street. <laughs> but everybody's got to read Heather McDonald's new book yeah, right. called yeah. When Race Trumps Merit. She mm -hmm. shows how this is happening in medical schools. Yeah in classical music, in science, they're saying, look, we don't have proportional representation. So we have to do everything possible to bring up the percentages, merit be damned. And so the extreme critical race theory people say the idea of merit is part of white supremacy. Right, right. And yeah, white privilege. You'll hear you know, statements like, uh, being to work on time is, an e is evidence of white supremacy and things like that. Well, and, and it's interesting yeah. with, with that, I mean, you could talk about another area at which the image of God gets hammered, and especially on the notion each one of these groups has a outspoken interest in demolishing the so-called nuclear family, mm -hmm. the place at which the image of God, male and female, he made them and the, the procreative come right. together in, in the God-given orientation towards the right way of orienting your creatureliness in life, right? 
And because of that, this has been one of the core factors that has hurt so many of the communities. Um, Thomas Sowell will give examples of how after the, the Civil War in the South, how a lot of African-American families were great builders of roads, mm -hmm. so good that they were being hired and there, it wasn't a zero-sum game. They could pick their price. Their families were intact. They were flourishing. They were not economically set back the way you know, it, it became much later. And so rather than seeing examples of that exploiting the, you know, exploiting bad examples of family life and then using that basically to eradicate it, um, you know, I mean, we understand what, the, you know, the statism that fills, you know, the place of God in this system, but why the intense drive to mm -hmm. break the image of God and its fuller expression. I mean, we see it with the trans movement, right? Oh, yeah. Male and female, he made them, and there is this eradication. You know, as I always say, out goes God, out goes the image of God. Mm -hmm. And it's the image of God in the family and the image of God in the human being are almost reminders to them that God is, right. and they have to get rid of it. Right, that's and right. They're operating under an assumption whether this is really what they believe or not, that any difference in outcome is a result of discrimination. It's not just race. So for example, if you can demonstrate empirically that single uh, parent households fare worse, the children in them fare worse than children in, with their biological parents in an intact family, well, that's just an example of discrimination against those single parent households because all things being equal, the outcomes should be the same. You should get exactly the same outcome no matter what the household configuration mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's not true. Well, or fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I, but I guess the thing with this is, you know, how do you, how do you get past this impasse with regard to, we're talking about people who've lost faith in reason. And the reason they've lost faith in reason is because they're materialists. And the only kind of thing that you can sort of arrive at reasonably with, if, you're, if you uh, begin with a materialist outlook is that the only way things kind of change is through conflict. So uh, you need transcendence to not just simply uh, provide people with a promise of a better world to come. You, you need transcendence to justify rationality. You need transcendence to um, give people a reason to have hope and faith and love in a world where, yeah, there are things that go wrong a lot, and there are there are injustices, but you can still have be, be joyful. Um, so I, I I dabbled in this stuff in the early '90s, and I think one of the things <clears throat> that uh, was a real kind of uh, shock for me and caused me one of the things that contributed to my turn away from it was the fact that the people that I introduced to it became bitter, nasty people. They went from being joyful people to bitter, nasty people. And I could say, that's the result of my ministry. <laughs> I turned a person whose hope was in Christ and uh, was joyful to a per person that kept score and uh, hated people and was bitter all the time. Uh, in the name of justice, and I said, "No, this is not the Christian way." This is so that was that was a, 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 you know a, kind of a, an epiphany for me. Um, but you know, I, I don't see any of these people as people that um, are really enjoying their lives. 
Well, that's that's a test. I think it's uh, does this worldview lead to human flourishing, to yeah. thriving, or right. existential viability is one way to put it. I think one thing we should come back to. Glenn and I were chatting about this before the show. Is a really significant part of all this is called the emphasis on standpoint epistemology, yeah. and it probably mm-hmm. comes originally from uh, feminism, left-wing atheistic feminism, and the idea is that these pe- the people who have been oppressed are uniquely experts on the dynamics of oppression. Mm-hmm. So, if you're black or if you're a lesbian, whatever it is, you're a Native American or a Native Alaskan, I'm from Anchorage, Alaska, then your view really trumps everybody else's view because you have been oppressed. This, this comes out of Marxism, too, that the proletariat have this unique ability to transcend the whole economic system and see what's really going on at the deepest levels, except when they don't. And then we have to reinvent <laughs> Marxism and make it critical theory. But this is really poisonous. It's a, it's a half-truth, it's a whole lie. Yeah. So I have no idea what it's like to be a black American male in the United mm-hmm. States. No idea. So when the country was blowing up in 2020, I made it a point to talk to some of my African-American male friends and just ask them some general questions. Do you ever think you were pulled over for no reason whatsoever by a policeman? One said yes, one said I don't think I ever have. Another fellow told me that he was often, blacks were often passed over for promotions uh, in the Alaskan uh, prison system. So I don't know what that's like. So we need to listen to each other and listen to the voices of people who have been marginalized and oppressed. That's, that's one thing that's right about this. However, that doesn't make you an expert on the Constitution yeah. or on the nature of the American system or how slavery worked or what would be good for people of color today. You see, the half truth is people experience the world differently and we, in love of fellow creatures made in God's image, should talk to them and listen to them and have big ears. That's a good term from jazz. Listen, (laughs) listen to what they have to say. But that doesn't mean that they know the best way to reform our economic system to help African-Americans or Hispanics. That doesn't mean they know anything about the Constitution or what the three-fifths clause really means. But this idea on lived experience, let me give you an example of this, and I won't betray confidences, probably. I I know of a setting where people were talking about my book, Fire in the Streets. And they said, ha, we won't read that. He's white. Okay, so 200 pages, about 500 footnotes, all these years of experience in philosophy and ethics and everything else, and you won't read it because he's white. That's what I call literary racism. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but if I'm wrong, I don't think it's because I'm white. I think it's because I didn't document things adequately, or I made some mistakes. But this lived experience is supposedly the trump card for the critical race view. It's, it's a very dangerous idea. It's like, yeah, it's partially true. But if you're talking about knowledge, about history, economics, and politics, you've got to go beyond first-person biographical experience. Right. That's crucial. That's an element in putting together your vision of society. But it can't be the end-all and be-all. 
I'm reminded of Leviticus 19.15, in which uh, the law tells us that any kind of favoritism, even favor, favoring the poor, is unrighteous. Mm. Mm. That, that implies, of course, that we do have the capacity to think uh, it can take work, uh, we have to put our interests aside and think about things fairly and clearly. Nevertheless, if we do put in the work, we can arrive at sound conclusions. We can make good judgments. If that were not possible, then civil order is impossible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are two other related issues here. One of them is that if you take seriously the way white privilege has been defined, you're not allowed to ask your African-American friends about their experience because that is white privilege. You are making them educate you. And they actually argue that that is something that's completely inappropriate. In other words, live in your hermetically sealed bubble while we demolish everything. Um, the, other, the other problem is that Use of statistics, which is a good way of balancing personal experience, use of statistics is also white privilege. So my, 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 one of my favorite political science people right now is a guy named Wilfred Riley. Uh, Wilfred Riley is an African-American political science at a historically black college. And what he does is he specializes in studying the statistical evidence for various kinds of social claims. And he's on Twitter. You go on Twitter with him and he will systematically demolish every one of the arguments coming out of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Because they just, they don't hold water. The claims that are being made simply do not hold water. But aside from the fact that he's an African-American himself, the problem is you can't present that evidence. It will be ruled out of court because statistics are an example of uh, white supremacy, white privilege. That's how you guys think about knowledge. It's not how we think about knowledge. And our way is just as good as yours. Well, what, Doug, maybe it's important if you teach philosophy to share a little bit about the history of perspectival epistemology. How it, I mean, we're seeing the fruits of it way, you know, on trying to navigate it in, in now the social media world and, and in our institutions. But there's a bit of a history to how we moved away from aiming towards universals and, and now towards a kind of radical, sometimes nominalism, sometimes far worse. Well, the beginning of perspectivalism was in the garden. Hath God really said? That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Every lie is perspectival, you could say. Yeah. Well, that's the problem because when you say it's, this is postmodernism. I wrote a book on this called Truth Decay back in 2000. There's no objective truth. Truth is constructed by society and individuals and groups. And no one gets to say what the truth, the objective reality is. Except they said, but really listen to persecuted groups because they haven't been in control. They haven't had the power. Well, now, fast forward over 20 years, the idea is the persecuted groups now have a lock on the truth just because they're members of persecuted groups. That doesn't follow. Moreover, you've got people who are African-American who don't agree with wokeism, who don't agree with critical race theory, like Wilfred Riley, like Thomas Sowell, uh, Shelby Steele, mm -hmm. 
And in fact, I made a point in my book, I, I think I did this maybe 100%. Whenever I said anything critical about the African-American community as to why there were problems with crime and education and so on, I always had a black person say it. So if I was gonna criticize uh, problems with, let's say, family structures, let me, let me read you something, we just have a minute. Of all the rocks upon which we build our lives, we are reminded daily the family is the most important. And we are called to recognize and honor how critical every father is to that foundation. They are teachers, teachers they are mentors and role models. They are examples of success and the men who constantly push us toward it. But if we are honest with ourselves, we'll admit that too many fathers are also missing from too many lives in too many homes. They have abandoned their responsibilities, acting like boys instead of men, and the foundation of our families are weaker because of it. You would, anybody know who this is yet? Anyway, I'll tell you. You and I know how true this is of the African-American community. We know that more than half of all black children live in single-parent households, a number that has doubled, doubled since we were children. We know the statistics that children grow up uh, without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They're more likely to have behavior problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves. And the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. Barack Obama, Father's Day remarks, June 15th, 2008. I've seen uh, black fathers in very difficult communities raise their children to be great citizens. Uh, I've seen it several times, and uh, it's an inspiring thing to see um, because often the guys who uh, who who do this uh, and are faithful to their wives and and involved in the lives of their children are not receiving a great deal of support uh, from their local community, uh, even from um, you know people that we would think have a vested interest in supporting them, like maybe um, politicians or or educators. <laughs> so it's almost like you have to be super confident and heroic as a black man to push against all of the stuff that's going on around you to discourage you from pursuing what you know is in the interest of your kids and in the interest of your wife and the interest of your community is just insane. Anyway, mm -hmm. something I've seen and I think that's increasingly becoming widespread across the board. I mean, I think men being involved in their children's lives, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, men are getting a beating day in, day out. Um, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I think that that kind of stuff, again, is that if if you're in that place with that position, that privilege and that power, um, it's really just you need to, to basically just shut up, <laughs> take a step back and not contribute. And the problem is it's that contribution in children's lives and in their families' lives and the rest of the society that is often the missing element in the places at which it could help fix rather than than, uh, you know, harm the situation. But there is a, an interesting point, just since Glenn is such a fan of Rousseau, um, <laughs> is that, Doug, when you mentioned uh, that kind of perspectival thinking, but, but it's moved at this point, like you said, to the particular, to, to groups. Um, 
is, is that there is kind of that Rousseau idea is that groups, because they've suffered, have been left out of the, civil, the corrupting civilizational structures. Mm. And, and, and that, is, that is a twisted kind of, a twist on the garden story, if you will. And, uh, the, the, you know, the Christian, Christian vision. Now, it, it's worth noting that um, a lot of people in CRT distinguish black people from people who happen to be black. And the distinction is that black people have the authentic black experience of oppression. Thomas Sowell, Clarence Thomas, any of those guys are just people who happen to be black. They don't have an authentic black experience. Which is absurd when you know their personal histories. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, you're, you're talking about with Soul and Thomas, guys who grew up in poverty. Yeah, or yeah. Carol Swain. Yeah. yeah. There are any numbers? So. Yeah. So I guess uh, when, we, when we think about the path ahead, do we have uh, anything that we can maybe point at and say, hey, this is not in inevitable, uh, that there are, there are some signs of hope. We can see maybe light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, on any of these things, Doug. Well, I, I have literally, literally been saying this for 40 years. Christians need to educate their own children, need to have Christian schools, homeschooling, and you can do a little bit of reform in the state schools, and you can have the money follow the children. That will tend to break up the monopoly of state education. But so much of what I'm saying is propagated at every level of mm. state education. Mm. So uh, George Grant is here, too. We're, we're like old Reconstructionists. Can we say that from back in the day? <laughs> and, and one of the things, I didn't keep everything of Reconstructionism or theonomy, but one of the things that was drilled into me by Rush Dooney and Gary North and David Shelton and these other folks is we have to control the education of our children. You don't give them over to state schools for right. 12 years. Right. So we need homeschooling, Christian schools, good private schools like classical academies. And then also uh, Thomas Sowell's last book was about charter schools. Now charter schools are state schools, but they're not totally dominated by the teachers' unions mm -hmm. and the parents are more involved and they tend to have more of a classical approach. And it's interesting that liberals used to like charter schools and then when they started becoming really effective and not being dominated by the teachers unions they turned against them <laughs> so i i just want to emphasize education in the bible in the classic ideals of american society which i talk about in my book uh, we're really losing a respect for these classical american ideals and os guinness has been writing about this uh, just one Jeremiah after another about how we're betraying a wonderful heritage. And my, my approach, as opposed to the critical race theory, which is so destructive based on false philosophy, is we can emphasize that we are given inalienable rights by our creator. We have certain freedoms. We have the great five freedoms in the First Amendment. We have a lot to build on, and we can reform American culture and society on the basis of the best of our ideals. That's what Martin Luther King believed. That's what Frederick Douglass believed. Critical race theory people do not believe that. They think America is racist from the beginning. You've got to tear it all down, start over again. And I say no. Now I need a beer.
I would also add that we have to remember that if we actually understand our own story as Christians, we've got a better story than they do. We have a better hope than they do. We have better answers that they do than they do. Absolutely. And we, we need to have the courage of our convictions. We need to recover. You know, the Christian tradition has plenty of resources to address the problems we're facing. Mm -hmm. We just need to recover them and start pushing them. We need, to, we need to be consistent with our own theology, with our own uh, historical tradition. We've messed up, yeah, but we've tended to correct ourselves a lot better than anybody else has. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that we just need the courage of our convictions and we need to stop hiding the truth that we have because it is better. It's got better answers. It's a better picture. It's a better story. Right. <laughs> Sometimes, though, uh, people have to kind of live th through the bad story to, until they're ready for the, the good story. And we think about the wilderness years of Israel. I kind of think of our time as something like that, where we find ourselves in a situation where we have a generation that just does not have ears to hear. And uh, the solution then was, okay, you all die. <laughs> and then another generation comes along and they're open. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, now, maybe that's too harsh. Maybe that's too despairing, too cynical. Um, if it is, uh, why uh, should we hope for something more, something uh, better in the near term? Is there anything that maybe, you, you mentioned, Doug, homeschooling, taking matters into our own hands, uh, knowing our own story, Glenn. Um, Anything, though, that maybe is another indicator that maybe we, we can see something a little nearer, uh, nearer term than the long-term solution I talked about? Ron DeSantis becomes president in 2024. <laughs> uh, you know, I say that I'm, I'm serious. I, yeah. I think he is an excellent candidate, an excellent man. But, of course, part of the problem is thinking that just electing our man or electing our woman is going to change society, bring us back to God. The damage is too too deep, the damage is too extensive right. for any one person, even the president, uh, to bring everybody back. But uh, as part of the battle, part of the battle is electing solid people with strong principles who you can trust. But it's far more than that. Uh, I talked to Os Guinness years ago and he, he was talking about how we can't just assume that electing the right people will fix things. He says, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of dead fish that floats down the Potomac by the time it gets to Washington. <laughs> it's like, these people are, are really damaged by the time they get to us. And even right. if they're not as bad as somebody else, uh, we've got to think in terms of, of generations, education, repentance, reform, long-term, and uh, not just jump on any uh, particular bandwagon. Uh, Archbishop uh, Chaput, I think is how his name is pronounced, Chapo, I think it is. Okay, well, yeah. uh, he commented once that he expected to die in bed, which he did. He expected his successor to die in prison. He expected his successor mm. to be executed in the public square. And he expected his successor to pick up the pieces and rebuild as the church has always done. Yeah, yeah. Well, that gets me to the next thing I wanted to... Can I, can I give you yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, please. I'm not going to do justice. You don't do justice to Chesterton unless you memorize him. <laughs> but, he, but he said something, he said something like, uh, uh, 
Seven times in world history, the church has been thrown to the dogs, and every time the dogs have died. <laughs> that's, that's, that's ultimately a, how it works. Encouraging thought. Yeah. <laughs> well, this gets, but, but this gets me to the thing I'm, I wanted to, to ask is, and that is the role of the church. So here we are at the PCA General Assembly. Some of us are part of the PCA, and uh, we're deliberating on matters that, frankly, 20 years ago, our forefathers in the faith could not have imagined us even talking about because they were just so obvious. Mm -hmm. In other words, you, you really want to talk about that? I mean, that's not like even in the realm of possibility. And here we are, you know, a denomination that uh, broke away from a, I think, heretical apostate body. And it's only gotten worse in that world. Um, but here we are dabbling in uh, the very things that you've been talking about. Um, what hope do we have in the near? I was just at, I'm, I'm on the board of an academic uh, association and uh, one of the people who was there, uh, Klaus Wren, got up and asked uh, rhetorically, um, what can we do? Uh, it doesn't seem like the churches are giving any uh, sort of constructive leadership in our society. Hmm. And I had to agree with them on the floor. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I think you're right, Klaus. Uh, maybe we need to just bring back the anathema. Maybe we need to start <laughs> praying in precatory prayers. Any, anything else, though, maybe that's not quite so drastic <laughs> that we can do. Any thoughts? Well, I do take heart in, in some of my students at Denver Seminary um, who are very bright, very passionate, and are gifted in various ways. I have one uh, young student who is really gifted in evangelism and through her training in our program in apologetics, she also is very deep in apologetics added to evangelism. And uh, uh, one of my younger colleagues, Ike Shepherdson, who I co-wrote a book with on apologetics is a very bright, capable, godly young man. So I'm encouraged by a number of my students, not all, <laughs> uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't too encouraged when I was told that I couldn't call Dylan Mulvaney a transvestite because that was a shaming term. Oh, man. I was but, told but... that in one of my students where I teach. So that led to a 40-minute discussion about a number of things. Wow. wow. So, it, you know, that is a huge issue now, gender ideology. And it's getting into evangelical this at, institutions. This is at Denver Seminary. You Not were, to name names, yes. <laughs> well, we could name any evangelical institution. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kidding. There's not one that I can mm -hmm, think of that mm -hmm. I could not have heard that. Yeah. Um, but it's just unbelievable that, that we're not ever supposed to make anyone feel bad even when they're doing really bad things. Well, there's this idea that a lot of evangelicals have, and sometimes the word that's used for it is winsomeness, which winsomeness is a or at least was, a great word. But I see in some evangelical settings the idea that we must never take social positions that will bother a non-Christian because then the non-Christian may not come to Jesus. Yeah. Have you picked up on this? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah I pick up on this all the, all the time and I yeah. think, wait a minute, Christianity is not just come to Jesus and be forgiven and go to heaven. It's a world and life view. Yeah. It's an approach to existence. It deals with ethics and politics and art and everything else and he's supposed to just shut up about anything that will offend a non-christian and and i think the retrieval of christus victor i mean christ is victor and lord right you cannot have those two things in place and talk about there being anything 
where she hasn't defanged and mm. basically made powerless the gods that they're all running to looking for their answer. And so yeah. there is going to be a, a, a bit, a, you know, a battle cry that Christians should be uttering mm -hmm. as Christians in a Christian way, but it's at the core of what we do. That's so you're going to be drawing lines all over the place because the, the places that we're not drawing the lines are the very places people are enslaved yeah. and entrapped and they need the deliverance Amen. that comes with Christ's victory. Amen. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. I love this image from Blaise Pascal. He said, when everything is moving at once, it seems as if nothing is moving, like when you're on ship. <laughs> yeah. When everything is moving towards depravity, it seems like nothing is moving unless someone stands as a fixed point. Mm. And when everything is going towards wokeism, critical race theory, gender ideology, and all the rest of it, we have to be okay. the fixed point. You know, we need to testify to the <laughs> truth. <laughs> well, on that note, we should probably actually start wrapping up the show. Because yeah. <laughs> we are at that time where we n normally do bring We're things to We're just getting excited now. <laughs> that's right, that's right. But uh, on that uh, point, to that point, is there anything you want to leave us with, uh, Doug? I'd like to leave us with prayer. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, we don't normally, uh, in fact, I don't know if we've ever ended a pugcast with a prayer. It's the first that, time for everything. I think that's Perfect. appropriate. And would you be... I would uh, love to. Yeah, pray yeah. for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth revealed in Scripture. Thank you that we have a rich resource of knowledge to bring to bear to all the issues of life. Lord, please equip us to do this. Give us the courage of our convictions, as my brother Glenn said. Lord, and please turn our country around. Please bring repentance to the nation, reality to people's minds and hearts, and real reformation and revival to the church. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Thanks a lot for listening to our time. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.